The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, it is remarkable and true and glorious and true that we can sing that song and it not be just pie-in-the-sky hope. When the trumpet sounds and you come, we will be found in you faultless, able to stand before the throne. That is because of your work, only because of you and your work, because of your idea, because of your initiative, your choice, your action, your power, we are recipients of it. Recipients of an awesome this gift. So we sing that as a prayer, and it is not just a far-off hope. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we could? But it is the truth expressed in hopeful pleading. Bring that day when you come and raise us up to stand faultless before the throne found in you. It's Paul's desire in Philippians 3, and it is our reality. And we say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your gracious, loving, amazing grace. Lord, this is the, the big picture that I'm going to use that language in a moment here. This is the big picture, and I pray that you would help us to keep that in mind and to remember it and moved by it, rooted in it, encouraged by it, with fires stoked from it, that, that this would move us to follow you, to live chasing after you, standing firm in you, as one people united. So Lord, would you cause these great truths, truths that are not just wishful thinking, but are truths that are hopes in the real sense, cause them to, to dominate our thinking and to fill our vision as we look forward, to fill the windshield of life as we, as we travel on and cause us to rest and rejoice to obey in hope and in joy. Move us to follow your decrees by your Spirit with these truths. Help us to see them a little more clearly, and again in a different angle perhaps from this passage this morning. Make clear to us who you are and who we are. Grow in us faith and hope and love. Build your church, Lord, and honor the name of Christ. So give clarity, Lord, here this morning to my words. Cause your spirit, please, to move through this room and to set aside from our minds and hearts all distractions, to cause us even now to set aside sin or lead us in repentance if that is necessary for us now. Clear away what is ever, whatever, is, whatever is present to block our hearing of your word and our seeing of your goodness. Grow in us great desire for you. Build your church and honor Christ, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 
We turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 4. Two weeks ago we finished chapter 3. And as we were there at the end of, of that chapter, we saw Paul celebrating our standing as citizens of heaven. Subjects of a great saving Lord, not Caesar, but subjects of the Lord Jesus, the great Savior, the great King, the ruler who is in heaven now and who is coming for us, it said, to completely transform us and to put down all rebellion against him and against his kingdom and against us. Which is great news and should call us, should move us to set our eyes on him and to look to heaven, to press after him, to strain towards knowing Christ, which you'll recall was Paul's main point for the whole of the chapter. All through chapter 3, not just in the last few verses, he'd been reiterating how he wants to know Christ. That was his point. Very concerned then also that the church in Philippi, and in fact us too, we like them, very concerned that the church would know Christ and would not be led astray or distracted or sidetracked by deceptions from the world. We would not be misled into into hoping, setting our minds on earthly things like he warned about in verse 19. But not be deceived by enemies who, who offer up false theologies and false hopes to us. And he just prays and preaches to the church that the church would, like him, regard everything else, everything else by comparison, as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He is bent on that in chapter 3 pressing on after Christ, looking to heaven where he is and from where he's coming. That's chapter 3, and then now chapter 4, conclusions. He's beginning to draw the letter to a close. He's got a long section at the end of chapter 4 where he's going to thank them for, and that's going to send him off on another subject, thank them for a financial gift. But he's starting to wrap up the body of his letter now, and he's going to pull together a few ideas that have been floating around throughout the letter and summarize them, a couple of biggies this morning in verses 1 to 3. A couple of things he's been after before, which we've seen before. Important subjects that even while he addresses them in a very specific context, he's going to name two women, specifically two women, who of course are not a part of us today. So he's got a very specific context here. But nonetheless, it has timeless application to us because we all know what it's like to be where they are and to live what they're living and to, to struggle with what they're struggling with. So what he says to them, he says to us. He has a word for us here this morning also. And may you receive it as Paul means it, coming in love for our good. This, more than, more than almost any other passage in Paul's writing, this, this is laced with love, this section. So we should see it like that and receive it like that. And there's, a, there's a, I think, a pretty important point for us in that itself, which we'll come to. Here's my main point for this morning, expressed in a sentence. In light of the big picture, which you can take everything out of that song, like I was praying, you take everything out of that song and put it in there. In light of the big picture, Christ and heaven and his coming and being found in him and standing before him approved. And how that's happened in the gospel. In light of the big picture, stand firm in unity. That's the point for this morning. In light of the big picture, stand firm in unity. 
I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, and then I'm going to make two observations unpacking the stand firm and in unity piece. Here's Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. It's our passage. Obviously, a chunk of it is very specific, but as I said, it's going to apply to us just as well. So I'm going to make two observations from verses 1 to 3. Here's the first one. Stand firm in your faith, beloved. Stand firm in your faith, beloved. Verse 1, Paul has an exhortation there. Really, it's a command, but it's, it's expressed as an urging, as, as an important summary pleading with the church. Stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. That is, what he means is be steadfast and unwavering, fully, strongly, with resolve, all kinds of words about focus here, with resolve, holding tight to the Lord. That's what he calls the church to. To, to the Lord, or we could say to the faith, to the gospel. Not just in, in affirming with your mouth, yes, I am a Christian and I remain so, but in life, walking, living in life, strongly committed in desire, in thought, in word, and in deed to Christ. That's the main focus of verse 1. That's the exhortation of verse 1. Which, you may recall, is the one thing that was most important to Paul back in chapter 1, verse 27. That very important verse back there that kind of set us off for a while on a path. He's kind of looping back to catch a couple of ideas from the very beginning he said back in 127, he has a concern for one thing only, that we would be citizens worthy of the gospel and that he would hear that the church was standing firm. There's the phrase. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now that, that side by side, one, oneness thing, we're going to come to that in the second point because, what well, do you know, he talks about that also. Right now we're focusing on stand firm. There is never any shortage of challenge to us, threat to us, in firm faith. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But it's helpful to be, to be honest about that and to be clear about it. We live in a world in which we are, are often tempted to kind of hit autopilot and just kind of coast and maybe it's helpful to be alerted to the fact that that does not work. Have you ever been driving in your car when you hit, you hit cruise control and you're driving along and you realize, I think we're slowing down. And, and you look at the speedometer and the number's going 65, 4, 3, 2, and you realize, oh, I guess I didn't actually engage the thing right. I've got to figure out, I turn the knob and punch the button and I didn't engage it. And so I, I let off the gas and 
That's what happens in life when we try to hit cruise control. I'm a Christian, cruise control. You don't hold at 65. 64, 3, 2, 1. That's what happens. Because there is no shortage in the world around us challenging us, seeking to limit, inhibit, curtail, cut down, suppress genuine, resolved, firm Christian faith in you. Not just in the world, but in you, in your heart. If, if you let off, you decline. Challenges out there are, are of a couple varieties. We've seen them in this letter. Paul touches on different things here. There's, there's harsh, suffering-inducing opposition, persecution from people who don't like us and this message and this Lord. It can be painful, embarrassing, hard. But perhaps for where we live today in this country, perhaps what's more common is the kind of distraction that he mentions in chapter 3, the kind of, of subtle undermining. Sometimes it's dressed up under the name Christian. Other doctrines and other ideas, maybe inviting you to put confidence in the flesh, where Paul started in chapter 3, to rely on who I am and what I do to maybe make me right with God or to gain me blessing from God or to secure me in life, to give me peace and hope. Confidence in the flesh. Maybe it's this, verse 19, setting my mind on earthly things, constantly influenced by the world around to pursue and to chase after things that may themselves be good, but when they supplant earnest, firm, passionate pursuit of Christ, they pale and are rubbish, in fact. That's in this world. It's all around you. challenge is always there. Do you know where it is in your life? What is it for you? Stop. I mean, think about that. What is it for you? Everybody acknowledges, I mean, I haven't said anything again. Sure, there are challenges out there. Yes, absolutely. There's constant whittling away at, at at Christians, there's constant luring of our, of our hearts towards the world. Yes, uh-huh, of course, yes. What about you? What is it for you? Where are you lured and tempted and tried and threatened? Maybe you know right off because it's, it's the great big sin challenge that is eating your lunch every day. The thing you wish you could stop, but you can't. That, that thing, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe you know right away, but maybe you don't. So give consideration. It may not look like bold, stark, harsh sin. It might look like, where do I find myself prone to complaining or prone to despair or prone to comparison or prone to jealousy or prone to frustration? It might look like that. That might not look like lack of firm faith because I'm not abandoning Christ in that. I mean, I, absolutely I'm still a Christian. I am for sure still a Christian as I am wallowing in my despair or as I am prone to complaining. I'm not leaving Christ. I'm just really unhappy about this. Okay, let's put those things together there and ask yourself, as I do myself, this works for me a lot. Something for different, different may work for you, but I ask myself often, why so downcast, oh my soul? 
That's the question that alerts me to the fact, as I am so downcast, because the next phrase is, why is it downcast all my soul? Put your hope in God. I'm alerted, I am so downcast because I am not hoping in God. I have let go a little bit. The cruise control is on in my life and the speed is declining. And I'm given to, in my case, discouragement, downcast. I'm glass half empty to start with and it just drains. That doesn't look, I, I have to remind myself that, that is not firm faith, not standing firm. Yeah, that right there. Do that work in your life to figure out, to, to look at yourself. What, what is my challenge? What's around me? What is perhaps shrieking at me or perhaps subtly whispering, luring and enticing? Come this way. Set your hope on this. Give attention over here. What is it? What is it for you? Find that, and in, in the face of it, stand firm in the Lord. Hold tight to Him. Christian, see what we just sang about. See the big picture and hold tight to it, to Him. In the face of all distraction and all threat, stand firm in the Lord. Paul's closing exhortation here. That's the focus. That's the command. But thankfully, there's a little more than just that because I even, as I'm saying it, I even find myself coming up short. Maybe as you're hearing it, you're finding, yeah, okay, okay. I want to I say and I want to ask, how? There's the command, yes. Great, how? Thankfully, there's some how here. He began the verse with a therefore. So he's got something in mind as he comes into this verse. And the command actually has a modifier. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Thus, in this way. Stand firm in this way in the Lord. There's some help here which is so good of God to give us. As an aside, learn to read your Bible looking for God. Learn to read looking at words and sentences and phrases, thinking, this actually is God talking to me, so when I find something helpful here, that's God helping me. And if God has moved to help me, I should say, thank you, that's helpful. You are good to do more than just say, do this, but to also say, do this, and here's how you do this. Thus, do it in this way. In all of it, if you're a Christian, there lives in you a desire to hold to Christ and, a, and you are grieved when you sin and grieved when you let go and, and walk away. That, that's just been implanted by you when you were made a new creature. 
And while there is a dose of, in, of invigoration which is necessary when we hear God say, stand firm, there's something particularly warming when he tells us how to do it. So here's how. Therefore, thusly stand firm means therefore, by letting Paul fill your minds with what he was just talking about, therefore, in that way, stand firm. Not in your own strength, but with a mind filled with what I was just saying, is what Paul's writing there. Therefore, thus, in other words, with your mind set on the truth that all that's enticing you is shameful things, earthly things that perish. Therefore, thusly stand against them. And better than that, better than that, who is of surpassing worth? What's he been talking about? He calls us away from and to. He calls us away from this all that is earthly and is passing away and is shameful, is, is only glorying in the belly, is, is going to be judged by God. Set that aside, stand against it, and stand firm with this one who is of surpassing worth. Christ. This one who died for your sin, who gave you a citizenship, who gave you a standing in heaven, who waits there for you even now and is going to come and get you and change you completely. I'm just talking about the last verse of the previous chapter, right before this verse. That one reigns as Savior and Lord and is coming to get you and transform you and will put down all rebellion. Therefore, thusly stand firm. We resist temptation and say no to lures not only by saying no, but also by saying yes. He just spent a chapter holding up in front of your eyes, brothers and sisters, the great big yes. Jesus. We resist junk food by being given, by having planted in us a superior appetite, a better taste, and then being assured that that will be satisfied. You say no to the bag of chips when there's a pot roast in the oven. You don't want to, to miss that, the smell of it. You know, it, it's not done yet, but in 28 minutes and 40, 34 seconds, look at the timer. It will be, it'll be good. And I don't want to be full on corn chips. He holds up in front of you. He, he commands, stand firm in the Lord, and then says, and here's how, by taking in what I just said about the worthlessness of everything else and the surpassing beauty of this one 
who is coming for you. Trust Him. Believe Him. Thusly, stand firm in the faith. That's the command in its totality, and it is delivered laced in love with great affection, which we should note. He says, therefore, brothers, sisters, Christians, whom I love and long for, technically he says, my beloved, which he repeats down at the end of the verse, so he says that twice in the same verse. These are people that he loves, people he longs to see again and be with, people who are his joy and his crown. He was just talking about the end when Christ comes back, and that joy and crown is an allusion to that because he sees, mentioned this earlier in chapter 2, he sees with his mind's eye that day when he will stand before the Lord with the Philippians at his side, and they will be his delight. This is what, oh Lord, you called me to this, you empowered me for this, and this is what came of my life, these ones, my great delight, my honored crown. He loves these people and longs for them, rejoices in them, is honored by them. And that's why He commands them to stand firm. That's why He warns them so stridently about enemies of the cross. Because He loves them and cares for them and wants them to be kept. Which should teach us something. Teach us something about how we ourselves should exhort and teach and warn those that are around us, those we love in our church or family or friends, with truth clearly stated, laced in love, that's real and is expressed in some way known so that people know that we love them and that's why we're, we're telling them, that's why we're concerned about them. So Paul, as we saw Chapter 3 is our role model, and we are to follow after him. And this is how he himself deals with people. He, he encourages and exhorts and, and calls them to Christ with great love. And so we should also, we, we should carry in our own words and our own demeanor, I love you and I long for you, and I think about presenting you before God on that great day, preserved and kept Firm in faith, pure and spotless and clean. You are a delight to me and my honor, which is why I tell you this. That's how we should be with people. We should follow Paul in this as he follows Christ. I'll say that again. We should follow Paul in this as he follows Christ. That's the model, the chain of modeling set up for us. We should follow Paul. We should follow the people who follow Paul as he follows Christ in this. Which should make us think of something else. So follow what I'm doing here. We see him give this command we see it laced with love, and indeed there is something that we can and should learn there and should apply in our relationships with people, be in the church or be in our family. So if you're a parent, 
for instance, it's very good and very appropriate to look at this and say, when I am speaking to my son, my daughter, giving some sort of command or exhortation or or a direction, I should do that laced in love that should be clear and known. This is why. The, the love is why I'm concerned for you, why I'm speaking like this. We can learn that. We can see that. We can apply that. Yes. But notice what I'm doing here. I'm also reading the Bible looking for God. We are to follow Paul as he follows Christ in this. So who is it that loves the church and longs for it? Where did Paul get that? The church is whose joy and crown? Whose delight and honor really? Think here. Christian. On that day, ultimately, who will stand next to the church and take her in hand, delighting, rejoicing in her and in how He has kept her and made her pure and spotless, though she was full of blemish, strengthened her to stand and taught her to walk, to believe, to obey, to worship, to rest? Who will sing over us? Who will sing over you? Think. Who will sing over you in joy and in honor, claim the church as his bride? Not Paul, ultimately. Paul loves the church, but someone else taught Paul to love the church because that someone else loves the church. And seeking to keep the church, to save and preserve the church, sent one to speak to the church words of truth and words of life. But that, you've got to see, that comes not from Paul, who thankfully loves us, that's great, Not from Paul, but from the one behind Paul, the true bridegroom, the one who loves you deeply, passionately, wide, long, high, and deep, and so speaks to you, stand firm with me. Stand here with me, which is a command and sounds hard, but comes only because my beloved that I long for, my joy and my crown, I want you here. Stand. And here's how. Fill your mind with the truth about what lures you away and the garbage that it is and the beauty of me. Fill your mind with that. Let my word wash over you to fill you and cause you to wonder and to glory and to rest and to worship. Overcome with what is real and good and beautiful. That which you were made to taste and see and delight in. It is His love that drives Him to command and to tell us how to keep the commands. And He has also told us that it is His kindness that leads us to repentance. So you need to see this. This is part of His beauty. That setting your mind on that will move you to repentance. Will move you to standing fast with Him. Christian, 
most of the time, I don't really understand this at the emotional, personal level, but it is, it is true, and Paul seems to think it's a big deal. Christian, if you're a Christian, you have no idea how deeply and completely, passionately, He loves you. Half of me doesn't get that, and the other half of me isn't sure that I, I really want to think about it in a bizarre sort of way. But in Ephesians 4, 3, when Paul says that he's praying for strength, for the Spirit to give strength to the Christians so that they would know how much God loves them, he finishes that off, maybe you look at this, He finishes that off to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's 319. Look at it later. There's something there. The fullness of God. Something there that we have yet to experience that would fill us if we knew how much He loved us. May God open our eyes to that and we see a little bit of it here modeled for us in how Paul loves the church and how Paul is concerned to spend his life in the preservation of the church. Christ loves you and loves the church and spent His life to preserve you. Stand firm with Him, beloved. Beset by temptation, lured into other offers, may you have eyes to see the goodness and the grace of this Jesus who is in heaven and is coming for you. Stand firm. Stand firm. The second observation then, I'm going to express it as an exhortation also, but it's not exactly like that in the verse. But it is related to instruction that he gave back in chapters 1 and 2, so that's why I'm expressing it as an exhortation. Be of one mind, my friends. It's the second point. Be of one mind, my friends. Verse 2 contains a remarkably clear and fair-minded and friendly statement. It's clear because he names names. In a public letter to be read in front of the whole church. That's pretty clear. Names names. Now, this isn't a surprise. They knew who these people were, and they certainly knew there was a disagreement amongst them. And we don't know who these people are. We don't know what the disagreement was. We don't even know who True Companion is, which is certainly a, a, a title. It's not a personal name of somebody, as the footnote suggests. It's, it's a title, maybe a, maybe a pastor or a traveling missionary or something. We don't, one of Paul's friends. We don't know. So there are things that aren't clear to us. But what is really clear is that he, he names names and calls out people in front of everybody. 
but it's fair-minded, that he doesn't take sides, which would indicate that there's no issue of absolute truth involved here. It's not that one of them is right and the other is wrong. He speaks to them both in the same way. I entreat, or I call, Euodia, and same, same wording, and I also entreat Syntyche. Both of them, same way. And I ask you, true companion, help them. Get to the point of agreement. So this issue and this agreement is a community affair. Clear, fair-minded, doesn't take sides, and is very friendly. This is how friends who love each other deal with issues. They name them, they bring them out in a fair-minded way, call in those who could be helpful to deal with it. They do not ostracize. They don't discard someone. They don't coddle or avoid the problem. Don't brush it under the rug and just smile on Sunday as if there's no problem. Face it. It says, we are a family. We work together. You help them. They're in the wrong. Each of them, they're in the wrong to be at each other. And they are beloved co-laborers of mine just like Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, all of them together whose names are in the book of life. That's friendly. It's friendly confrontation. Which might not at first glance seem all that helpful in guiding them how to resolve this discord, because he essentially just says, resolve it. But let's look at it again, because there is some help here. He calls them to, my translation says, agree in the Lord. In fact, he uses the word, wording that he uses there in that phrase in verse 2 is the same wording that he used back in the beginning in the same context that we were just in in end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. He said, I want you to stand firm back there, verse 27, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Similar here. Then chapter 2, verse 1 he elaborates on that. I want you to be of the same mind, of one accord and one mind. He's using the same word there again and again that's translated agree here. Really, it's one-minded. It's so similar that some have thought that this was the issue that he had in mind all the way through, and perhaps it's the root issue at all the discord in the church. Maybe they have a rivalry here that's created two camps. We don't know. But what is clear is that the connection between the two passages and the language reveals that Paul is not calling them to agree in the sense of one of you guys change your opinion and take the opinion of the other one. That's not what he means by agree. He means in the chapter 1 and 2 sense, he's calling these two women to one-mindedness to single-mindedness together. One-minded in the Lord. And what does Paul think we are all always to be single-mindedly concerned with? Three answers. First two don't count. What is life about 
What is of immeasurable worth compared to which everything else you might care about or have an opinion about or a preference in, by comparison, is rubbish. Christ. To live is Christ. What he's calling them to is single-minded Christ focus. You could use another word and say the, the Word of Christ, or you could say the Lord, like he does right there, or you could say the Gospel, however you want to express that, Christ is the answer. That we would be, Euodia, Syntyche, that you would be single-minded people. You know this. You are. Look how he describes them. Descriptions of people are important, especially when they're already completely known. He's writing to a people that obviously know who these two women are, but he describes them. Who labored side by side with me in the gospel. They would be forgiven. They said, well, yeah, duh, I'm in court. We know that. Why do you say that again? Because he wants to bring back onto the table the thing. It's about the gospel. It's about the ministry of Christ. You guys know this. You, you are co-laborers with me. In fact, not just with me, but with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. That's what we're about. Christ. Help them get there. Help them remember that. They are partakers in the sufferings of the gospel with me. And more than that, recipients Are they aware, are, are you aware, I mean, do you, if you're a Christian, do you realize that your name is written in the book of life? Yeah. So why would I bother tell you that again? To remind you of it, because you've obviously forgotten it in this context. Whose names are written in the book of life. We are about Christ, we are partakers with him in this ministry, and we are recipients of him who has given us a standing Names in books are, are an allusion to membership roles, citizenship roles in, in cities and in states. You have a citizenship in heaven, is what he's saying there. Because Christ gave it to you. And you know that you're a co-laborer, a fellow worker with me in the ministry. So be single-minded, you Odia, Syntyche, Christians. How do, I, how do I get to that point? Well, I'm just talking to you about all these things. And you know them. This is our needed mindset amidst discord. Sometimes, there, surely there is truth to be discussed sometimes. And in our, our discord is sometimes about things that are right or wrong. And I'm not trying to, to denigrate that or to throw it away and say, who cares about truth? I'm not saying that at all. But often, discord is about opinion. Simplify it. I like hymns and you like praise choruses. Or the other way, if that's who you are. One-mindedness in the Lord is not about changing preferences. It's about together preferring something else above your own preferences. It's not about changing preferences. It's about preferring something else above your preferences. 
I like hymns, but above that, I love the Lord and want to see Him praised and His people as praisers, as maximally helped in their quest for giving praise and communing with our Lord for His honor and for the good of His people and the growth of His kingdom. I am first and foremost, always and forever, in the Lord, in Christ, and secondarily, a fan of hymns. That's what He's calling us to. With that kind of mindset, one single-minded about Him and His kingdom, in that place, we will together see, by comparison, this issue that we are disagreeing about is unimportant, yea, even rubbish. I still have an opinion about it. But I'm certainly not going to fight you over it. And I'm certainly not going to sin in my attitude over it. And I'm certainly not going to portray to an outside world with my mouth, we are about Christ. When we actually live, we're about hymns. That's what must be if I'm going to be okay. No. I want to with my mouth and with my life. So I'm about Christ. I have preferences and desires, absolutely. And I will talk about them, we will discuss, but at the end of the day, I and we all will be about Christ because that is where life is. That kind of mindset is how you solve problems, how discord is dealt with. So will you not see all of your earthly preferences in light of Christ and in light of eternity? Christian, this one with whom you are at odds, whoever whoever it is right now, and it's probably somebody that you're a little bit at odds with in some way, if he or she is a Christian, is a co-heir with you. Name written in the book of life right after yours. Beloved of Christ as much as you are. Does that fill your mind? Part of loving people might be to, as we were just saying, part of loving people might be to confront them with truth. But there are times when we need to consider the preferences of others above ourselves, right? Chapter 2. Preferences. Consider the needs of others above our own. So are we of one mind? You can't control the other person, of course. So when I say we, I really mean you individually. Is Christ your greatest concern? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Is, is, is He what you're about? Is He who you are after? Is He the one with whom you are standing firm? He calls you to that. Commands it even. He calls you to it because it is the testimony that He wants in the world and because it is your good. To live a life here and now, single-mindedly set on Christ, would set you free from such winds of, 
of unstable hopes. Such things that you can't control. And if your life is banking on them, as soon as they are threatened, you, are, you yourself are threatened. You can be set free from that if Christ was who you were single-mindedly about. Which is part of why he calls you there. In light of the big picture, brothers and sisters, stand firm with Christ. Stand unified with one mind set on Christ. And I don't mean this flippantly. And enjoy Him. And enjoy Him. And enjoy Him. Let me pray. Lord, we're about to take in our hands these these elements of cup and bread. And as we do, would you remind us of the big picture again in a new way with these tangible elements? Would you remind us of your gracious saving of us, your people, of your love for us, of your commanding of us and keeping of us, Fill our minds with that, and would you, in that, produce an obedient people who hold fast to you and a gracious people who live unified with one another. Fill our minds with the big picture and convince us of its truth. Persuade us with its beauty. Lord, do that work in us, I pray, even now. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.